Acts 4, beginning with verse 23. And as we do each week, let us read together and let us read aloud. Verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of reading your word. And today, to have that same privilege of studying your word, that we may grow in wisdom and knowledge and grace. We ask that you would anoint and bless us now with your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord, to overflowing, that we may understand fully, Lord, the words before us today. But Lord, that we may go beyond just our knowledge from an academic standpoint. Lord, we, we want to be able to understand these things that we might do them practice them as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ may we be prepared and ready for his return we ask these things now in Jesus name amen Amen. y'all may be seated let me ask you all a few questions to stimulate some thought before we begin Questions I want you to really think about. Consider. Are we in agreement that we live in dangerous times? Think about the question. Are we in agreement that we live in dangerous times? That we live, as it says in the scriptures, in perilous times? Secondly, do we all together believe that there is a sense of urgency in regards to the number of people who will find themselves without Christ and salvation and are in need of the truth of the gospel before Jesus returns? Think of the question. Think of the situation that stands before us today. In light of the first question, Do we agree that we live in dangerous times? Then do we all together believe that there is a sense of urgency in regards to the number of people who will find themselves lost without Christ and salvation and are in desperate need of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ before He comes again? There's danger. And because of that danger, there's an urgency in the church. But lastly, let me ask this. Why is it then that as a whole, we believers in Jesus Christ have somewhat of an understanding of prayer, theoretically and academically, but for the most part, we don't grasp it practically? 
In other words, we don't pray as we should. We don't pray as we should. I would have to say that in this room today, many of us would have to agree that we don't pray as we should. We don't pray as often as we should. We don't pray with the depth that we should. And this is not to judge. This is not to say, you know, hey, you know, I know what your prayer life is like. I don't know, but God does. You see, oftentimes we find ourselves comfortable in our Christian walk with, with very little sense of urgency and danger in regards to the days in which we now live. Now please understand this, that it may also reflect how little we witness our faith in Christ. Because if more people witness for Jesus on a daily basis, there would be more urgency as well as blessing in every prayer meeting that we attend. Because we would be coming to pray to say, Lord, we want to see more people come to Christ. Therefore, if we want to see more people come to Christ, then give us, Lord God, the wisdom and the boldness to tell people about Jesus. What blessing would come when we would focus our attention on these things? And it is still sad to say and and to think that the last, I should say the least attended meeting in our churches is the prayer meeting. So where is the urgency then? And where is the sense of danger? Where is the urgency in our prayer and where is the sense of danger in our prayer? Now please understand this. As we come to our text today, we have to keep in mind the fact that Peter and John were originally going into the temple to a prayer meeting back in chapter 3 before they ran into this lame man at the gate called Beautiful. And the urgency and the danger arose for them despite the fact that the lame man was healed completely and opportunity was given to them to preach the gospel which added more souls into the kingdom and more members into the church. And up to that point, you know, uh, uh, Peter had, had preached a couple of times. Thousands of people came the first time. 3,000 souls were saved the first time. Later, 5,000 souls. If, if it was just a number of 5,000 that, that came to, uh, to, uh, to know Christ uh, after the two uh, uh, meetings, then you know, that's a good number. Some believe it was 3,000, 5,000, adding up to 8,000. So there was a tremendous uh, a harvest of souls that came in uh, to the church without a lot of opposition, as it were, until, you see, until the first major opposition arose against the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles by the religious leaders in the temple who took Peter and John and arrested them, actually. They confined them, that the council might ask them these questions and and, and threatening questions, as it were about the very fact that this man was healed by the power of, of, of God through Jesus Christ, the one that they had crucified. But there was no thought on Peter and John's mind to back off and to concede to what would have amounted to overstepping their boundaries and acquiesce or comply with their demands. It was not what they were going to do. You see, you go back to verses 18-20 through 20 in this same chapter, and it says, And they called them and commanded them, These religious leaders called Peter and John and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. That was their threat. Do this no longer. You're not to speak here in the temple. You're not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they refused then to be intimidated by the council's threats, which brings us to our text today. And you'll notice in verse 23 it says, And being let go, being let go from the council there, they went to their own companions, it says, and they repeated all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Opposition had arisen. An enemy to the gospel of Jesus Christ had arose in the midst of a religious people. And the first thing that Peter and John did was to gather together with their own to give testimony of all that had taken place. 
Now the fact that it says they went to their own strongly suggests that they belonged to one another. They went to their own. By the way, if you look in your, in your Bibles, if you have the New King James Version or King James Version, you know that word for companions there, whatever that word may be, uh, is, is in italics and it says that that wasn't in the original text. But it is put there to give us a, a, an idea of, of, uh, of what the, they were doing. But, but literally it says they went to their own. And it suggests that they belonged to one another. It, it suggests that they were a part of each other. They were a part of one another. It was, it was suggesting that they were connected to each other through Jesus Christ. They were connected through Jesus Christ in His work, in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection. They were connected to Jesus. They were in one accord with Jesus and with each other. And what brings that about? What is it that brings that kind of unity about? What is it that brings that accordance about, you know, where they are in one accord with each other? What causes these men to stand fast against their opposition, against their accusers, and not give up? What causes that? You see, we need to know that because today, too often, there are a lot of threats going out to people who are preaching the gospel today. And being, you know, you're, you know you're, we're being told as, as a church, you know, you can't talk about Jesus here. You can't talk about Jesus there. I mean, isn't there a, a separation of church and state and people in ignorance starts, you know, quoting what they don't even understand? But it's all to threaten you from doing what God has called you to do. You can only speak what you've seen and heard. What brings it about? What causes us to stand against this opposition and these accusers and not give up? Some people are actually giving up. We ought not to give up. But what causes the church to see their connection to one another in Jesus Christ? That unity that we have seen since Acts chapter 2. The unity that came when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 and then spread through the 3,000 and the 5,000. What causes this? Simply, simply, they had the mindset of a servant. Simply, they had the mindset of servants. They understood what it meant to be a slave of Jesus Christ. They understood what it meant to be a slave. In other words, they thought like servants. That is necessary today in the church of Jesus Christ. That we know what it means to be a servant. That we think like servants. That we act and do things as servants of Jesus Christ. And I can say this, and I'll, I'll reiterate this again later, but, but you know, it's one thing to serve, and it's another thing to be a servant who serves. What I mean by that is that, that, that you can serve and, and not be a servant. People can serve without being servants. People serve today in the church. They serve to be seen of men. Some people serve so that people will look at them and say, Oh my, that must be a servant. But they do it for that intention. That's not a servant. Others will serve and they'll complain about one thing or another. They'll, they'll complain about, Well, I don't know why I'm doing this and why I'm doing it by myself. I don't know. Why, how come that person isn't doing this? You know, That's not a servant. You might be doing it, but your heart says you're not a servant. There are others who serve in the church, but they just complain about one thing or another. They mumble, they groan. That's not a servant. You see, so you can serve and not be a servant because you don't have a mind of a servant. You, have a, you don't have the thought of a person who is totally committed to one master, Jesus Christ. But these disciples and these apostles, they thought like servants. They understood and they learned well from Jesus. Now, maybe they didn't learn well when Jesus was with them because they struggled a bit with their concept of servanthood. But they eventually got it. Because the Lord Jesus certainly taught them well. Consider Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus says to them, He calls them to Himself and He says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, within the Gentiles they had their hierarchies. They had their people that would look down and, 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 and really you know, enslave people. He says, you, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever desires to be great shall be the lowest, shall be the servant of all. 
And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. That's the mindset of a servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. There's our example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Which means that He gave His life completely. He gave His life totally as a payment for us. A ransom for many. They, they, stumbled, they stumbled and struggled with that. But they finally got it. When the, when the Lord just poured Himself out to them, when they saw Jesus down on the cross, they saw the greatest example of servanthood. They got it. There's something else that Jesus taught them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 and following. In Matthew 10, verse 24, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. You see, when, you, when, when a person serves, but they just complain and gripe and, 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 and say all kinds of other things, you know, that, that they're doing that against the Lord, not so much about, about everybody else. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. Did Jesus ever complain? Did Jesus ever grumble? Did he ever gripe? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? That's you and me. If they call Jesus, you know, the, uh, the uh, master of the house of Beelzebub, what are they going to call us? And therefore, do not fear them. This is the greatest lesson we can learn here. Do not fear all those threats. Do not fear all those things that are said. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. The fact is that a disciple is not greater than his master, than his teacher. And a servant is not greater than his master. And what we find, you see, in the next verse, and everything else following is the greatest is just the greatest source and concentration of power in all of Jerusalem in that day by the servants of Jesus Christ. The greatest source and concentration of power in all of Jerusalem in that day. Not what the council's power had or not what the council's authority was all about. The greatest concentration and source of power in all of Jerusalem in that day was this prayer meeting that we're reading and studying about this morning. And it was more than a prayer, by the way. It's a great prayer to learn and a great prayer to study. But it was more than a prayer. It was a psalm of praise. Notice in verse 24. So when they heard that, in other words, when the disciples heard what Peter and John had shared about their encounter with with the religious leaders in, in, in the temple, when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, the prayer itself was conceived out of, a, out of testimony and service for the Lord. Peter and John had just come in from the battlefield. They had gone to go pray, but now they found themselves in a battlefield. They found themselves in the trenches, as we often do as believers in Jesus Christ in this world. And they came back, as it were, you know, from these trenches and this battlefield because an enemy had raised its head, finally. An enemy had raised its head and they prayed for boldness to defeat this enemy. But we're not talking about flesh and blood. But there was an enemy. But the first thing they did in their prayer, the first thing they did was to acknowledge their God vocally and in unity. They acknowledged their God vocally and in unity. They raised their voice to God with one accord. They raised their voice. By the way, this was not everybody yelling and screaming and shouting at the same time. They raised their one singular voice. In other words, someone prayed. But they all in agreement prayed in their heart as this this prayer is given to us. They prayed in one accord. They were together. They reunited about this very thing. And they said, Lord, You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So as I said before, it's important to note that they didn't all speak at the same time. The word voice is in the singular. In other words, they were all in one heart. They were all of one heart and of one mind. They were in one accord and they were in agreement as the prayer was lifted to the Lord. And they began by by reminding themselves who they were praying to. 
That's an important thought here when we consider our prayer life. Do we know who we're praying to? They reminded themselves who they were praying to. They prayed to the Lord of all creation, the God of all power. Did you know that's who we pray to when we get on our knees to pray? We're praying to the Lord of all creation, the God of all power. Does that say anything to you? <laughs> what is significant about this is that they, were, they, they used uh, uh, the word that they used for Lord here. Verse 24. It wasn't the usual Greek word that is used for Lord in the New Testament. That word that we normally use for Lord is the word kurios. Kurios. That's not the word that is used here. The word for Lord here is the Greek word despotis, from which we get the English word despot or despot. And in the English, we oftentimes just use that in a very negative sense, as it were, when we're looking at some, some evil kind of ruler or some evil kind of leader, like Idi Amin was called a despot from Uganda. You know. And there's many others that are living today. A guy down in Venezuela, you know, Hugo Chavez is a despot, as it were. You get the idea. You know, that's how we use the English word today. But why is this word being used here? While we use it as a derogatory manner to describe, a, or in a derogatory manner to describe a ruler with absolute authority and power, here, however, it is used as a term of endearment. What I mean by that is that these first Christians had the mindset of servants. These Christians who had the mindset of servants, they used it as a different type of despot. They were servants of a different type of a despot. A slave owner or ruler who had power that could not be questioned. Please take note of this uh, definition. A ruler or a slave owner who had power that could not be questioned. One who is in control of all things. A ruler who exercises absolute power. A truly sovereign Lord. That is what despotis means. The difference is that they joyfully submitted to him. They joyfully submitted to this despot, this loving despot, this loving owner, this loving ruler, who had the power not to be questioned, who had, who had control of all things, who was a ruler who exercised absolute power, a true sovereign Lord. The disciples had power in prayer, because they knew who they were praying to. That word is so significant that it is used here. Because it is to remind us of who we are to pray to. Who it is that we are praying to. Who it is that we are laying our petitions before. Who it is that we're laying our supplications before. When we pray. Consider the prayer as we go on in verse 25. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said. By the way, notice how many times in this prayer they use the word servant. Servant David, your holy servant Jesus, twice. So three times the word servant is used here. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. This is the third time now that we, we, we look upon that predetermined counsel of God. We saw it in chapter 2. We saw it in the preaching of Paul, uh, Peter in, in chapter 2. Preaching of Peter in chapter 3. We see it again in chapter 4. The predetermined counsel of God. They said, uh, you know, all these people gathered together according to your purpose and your hand. And so what we find here in, is that in their praying, they were praying solidly founded on the Word of God. Their prayer was solidly founded on the Word of God. You know that we can only do that if we do what? If we get into God's Word, if we know God's Word, if we read God's Word, if we study God's Word. We encourage that here. 
In this case, the basis was Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that to you. Why do the nations rage, it says, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. By the way, the word Christ and Messiah, which, which is what Jesus is, that's not, his, that's not a name, that's His title. His, it means the anointed one. So here in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the psalm, it says against His anointed. Same thing. It's his Christ, His Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. So prayer and God's Word should always go together. Prayer and God's Word should always go together. Please take hold of this. Don't be distracted by things around you. Listen carefully. What, 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 are, we, what are we thinking about when, when, from, the, from the very onset of what we started talking about today? Urgency and what? The danger that we live in. The danger that is around us. We ought to be paying attention. Prayer and God's Word should always go together. Prayer and God's Word should always go together. Turn to John chapter 15. These are the words of Jesus, and He says to us here, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you. Do you see that? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. It's a powerful statement that Jesus gives. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. In His Word, the Lord speaks to us. You see, this is what we need to grasp from this. In His Word, the Lord speaks to us and makes clear what He would have us to do. In prayer, we speak to Him and make ourselves available to accomplish His will. You see, His Word gives us His will. That would then become our desire. That's why He says... You will ask what you desire. Not what you desire, but what you desire knowing God's Word. You see, we are not in prayer telling God what to do as some may think. We are not in prayer telling God what to do as some may think. In effect, we are asking God to do His will in us and through us. It is a matter of getting God's will done on earth, not man's will done in heaven. That's what prayer is about. And that's what the Word of God in prayer is about. We stay in God's Word to know His will for our lives. So that when we ask in accordance to His will, He gives us what we ask. You see how different it is from people who just ask for things for themselves, selfish things, things that, you know, for their own pleasures and so on and so forth. It's not what that's all about. With that in mind, we can better understand this passage in John's first letter. In, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, listen to what he writes. He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him all of that is focused around knowing his will we ask anything according to his will that's his word in us that's his word teaching us that's his word speaking to us that's his word showing us the direction He wants us to take. It's not us making up our way along the way, as it were. So getting back to their use of Psalm 2 here, we have to understand that it was actually a prophecy of how the promised Messiah would be resisted by earthly authorities, and so their application was toward this, the recent rejection of Jesus 
in His first coming. By the way, that particular prophecy extends not only through Jesus' first coming, but also really into Jesus' second coming as well. Because how many people today reject the person of Jesus Christ? You know, we, we live in a very religious society today. That doesn't mean that everybody believes in Jesus or that everybody, anybody wants, that everybody wants to hear about Jesus. There's all kinds of different religions that people are tapping into or trying to tap into today to find some kind of, you know, self-fulfillment or whatever. You start mentioning Jesus, they don't want to hear that. See? So there's rejection of Jesus involved even here. But on this level of a higher authorities or higher authorities of Gentiles and so on and so forth. And, and so it was about that recent rejection of Jesus. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 4 verse 27, going back to our text, it says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, there's that servant word again, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. So both Gentiles and Jews, as it were, were gathered together to do, that says, whatever your hand and purpose determined before to be done. Whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. These Gentiles and these Jews had ganged up against Jesus Christ and even crucified Him, yet the Lord raised Him from the dead, and we, now, and we know that He now sits enthroned in heaven. We know that. But all of this was a part of God's complete and perfect plan. His purpose predetermined before to be done, as it says there. Could there be any reason then to fear at all? Could there be any reason to fear? You see how their prayer is, is designed. It is designed, first of all, to acknowledge God. It is to say, Lord, you are God who created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it. So they're acknowledging who this God is that, they, that they're praying to. And then they go to God's Word and they say, Lord, just as your Word says, there would be this rejection of the Christ, this rejection of Messiah. And it's happening here in our own midst. But it's happening according to your hand, to your purpose, as it was predetermined. With that in mind, could there be any reason to fear at all? What do they have to fear? This is a very important aspect of our prayer life. Do we really trust the God we pray to? Do we really trust that He is going to be with us through whatever He takes us in this life? Do we trust that? Do we believe that? You see, they truly believed in God's sovereignty and plan. But this is no way affecting their responsibility to be faithful in giving witness and in prayer. You see, they're not just saying, Oh Lord, uh, you know, just do whatever you have to do. We'll sit back and wait for you. This is not what they're saying. To believe in a sovereign God, you see, uh, we, have, we as Christians have to realize that the Bible teaches two things. It teaches the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God has given us a responsibility. He's given us a responsibility to, to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, to, be, to do the work of the evangelist, to pray, to seek the face of God and all these things. Yet we trust that He's a sovereign God and He's going to do what He has predetermined to do. God is in control, you see. Exercising His absolute authority over all His creation. And we're His servants, you see. He's the despot. He's the loving divine despot. He is the owner of us all. He is the one who cannot and does not have to be questioned about anything He does. He is the one who is in control of all things. He is the one who exercises absolute rule over all His creation. And if that is the case, we are His servants. We are committed in one accord to His truth. You see, I have another question to ask you today. Is He your absolute master? Is He your absolute master? Turn to Luke chapter 6. Turn to Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6 verse 46. Notice what Jesus says. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? And then he says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, 
I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing. You see, this is what burdens my heart today. That we could hear today and do nothing. You see what burdens pastors? To preach the Word, to give forth God's Word, and to wonder, Lord God, are they hearing and are they doing? And Jesus said, But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Is that not something that should set an urgency in our heart about our own personal lives with Christ? Isn't it an urgent thing for you to know how Jesus cares about you being planted deeply into the rock that is Christ? So that no matter what kind of storm or or flood may come, nothing is going to happen to you because you're founded on the rock. You're founded on Christ. Because you're doing those things that He says. You see, there really isn't a place for picking and choosing what we like or don't like about what the Lord asks of us. No, 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 no. That's why we're asking this question. Is He your absolute Master? So we've gotten into this thought here. It's, 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 it, isn't, it isn't like some who approach the Christian life today as if it were some great cosmic salad bar. I, I know a lot of you like salad bars. Right? I mean, you know, how many of you like salad bars? I'll be honest. Okay, see. How many of you don't like salad bars? Nobody wants to admit that. It's a couple of people. They're kind of... I know why you don't like it, because you don't like the, you know, that, that, uh, that glass you know, where everybody breathes on. And... But folks, it isn't like some who approach the Christian life as if it were some great cosmic salad bar, as if they just load up their plates with the things they want and ignore the rest. And then get frustrated when things don't work to their liking. It's the way a lot of people approach the Christian life today. Oh, I didn't like what he said today. What? Did you pray about it? I mean, did you realize that some of the things that I'm saying today you might not like, but that's because the flesh is responding to it, and it's the Spirit that is saying, let it come through because we need to live a different life. We need to live a different way. You see, the disciples believed that God was Lord of all. The disciples believed that God was Lord of all, and we should as well. Do you believe that He is Lord of all? Then, do you call Him Lord and do what He says? It's only to your benefit if you do. Look at verses 29 and 30 now of our text. Now, Lord, they say in prayer, now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Once again, servant Jesus. Holy servant Jesus. The emphasis on servanthood. The emphasis uh, on, on 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 the very fact that there is one despot. One absolute ruler, absolute authority, who cannot be questioned, who is in control of all things, who is sovereign above all things, and yet can be loved and served with joy. You see, the disciples didn't pray to have their circumstances changed. Oh God, these people are threatening us, and and so hide us somewhere. Send us to another city where they'll accept us, where they'll like us, where they'll, they'll just receive the message so gladly. Lord, change our circumstances. No, they didn't pray that, did they? And then they didn't pray that their enemies would be removed and taken out of the way. Oh God, let those religious leaders be run over by all the chariots. 
Let something bad happen to them, Lord. Bring fire from heaven. They don't pray that. Instead, they ask the Lord to grant them power and boldness to make the best use of their circumstances and to accomplish what He had already predetermined. You see, they didn't pray for escape. They prayed for enablement. They didn't pray for escape. They prayed for enablement from God and the Lord gave them the power that they needed. The Lord gave them the power that they needed because they knew how to pray to the God that they served. You see, one of the great Scripture prayers that we can pray when we need strength and by the way, that's, that's again another emphasis of, of our, our need to know God's Word. Because in God's Word there are prayers that we read and we say, Oh God, that's exactly what I want to say. It's exactly what I need in my life to, to be a better servant for you. And one of those Scripture prayers that we can pray when we need strength is Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Turn there and mark this down. Whenever you need strength, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Beginning at verse 14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, notice, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, or by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We can pray that prayer when we need strength. And it is, it is, it is very clear that Paul is saying that he wanted the church of Jesus Christ to be filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God. The width, the length, the depth, the height, the, all the dimensions of our life to be touched and filled with the power and the glory of God. That opportunity can happen to every believer in Jesus Christ who will pray to the God that he should know is sovereign, know is powerful, to know that he is able, to know that he is willing to give us what we need in this life. And I suppose that when you ask for more boldness and more power, you're also asking for more trouble. Did you know that? But that's okay. Because we're already in the midst of trouble, aren't we? Didn't we agree that we're living in dangerous times? All we're asking for is more trouble, but the, the important thing is to be consumed with the cause of God's glory. Because the apostles were consumed with the cause of God's glory and not so much for their comfort and not so much for their advancement. They didn't ask for the ability to perform miracles themselves, but they understood that Jesus heals with His own hand from heaven through His servants, and that's what they prayed for. They delighted in the power of God, and they believed in that power. My question to you is, do we? Do we believe? Do you believe that God has the power to do that even today? From heaven, through us. It isn't you and me. It's Him. That's the power. And He'll use the weakest vessel. Yet the weakest vessel that says, Lord, I'm weak, but You're strong. You're able. You're powerful. You're mighty to save. You're mighty to heal. Phillips Brooks was a late 19th, early 20th century preacher. And, and he said, he wrote something very significant about prayer that I want you to hear. He said, do not pray for easy lives. 
Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. That goes right along with what is taking place here in this passage today. Don't pray for powers equal to your tasks. That would be like a very young Christian who doesn't know a whole lot. Saying, Lord, don't give me too much to do. I don't have too much to give. Instead it says, pray for powers equal to your tasks. We all have difficult tasks. We need equal powers from God, greater than equal powers from God. That's the idea here. Don't pray for tasks equal to your power. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. That is the way the early Christians prayed. God, give us boldness to deal with this opposition. Give us boldness to deal with that which is coming against the name of the Lord. But we will do, Lord, what you say. We believe because you are Lord above all. You are the sovereign ruler. You are the one who cannot be questioned. You are the one who is in control of all things. You are sovereign Lord. (laughs) If he is, and you believe that, what happens? Look at verse 31, and we'll close with this. Hopefully we'll close real quick. <laughs> but don't bet on it. And when they, when, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They had a God quake. It was a God quake. The place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. It has been stated that the glory of God and not the needs of men is the highest purpose of answered prayer. It is the glory of God and not the needs of men that is the highest purpose of answered prayer. Evidently then, the Lord was pleased with His very thought in the prayers of His people that He shook the place where the meeting was as an outward expression of His delight in His servants submitting to His will. Oh, I pray, Lord, shake this place because we trust and believe that You have the power to do what You want to do in Your predetermined will. I would love to see this place just shaken, but Lord, make sure that nothing falls apart. Then we'd have to fix it later. But just as a sign that says, I I am delighted by your faith. I am delighted by your trust in me. And then he filled them once again with the Holy Spirit to give them the boldness that they needed to keep on serving the Lord in the midst of opposition. And all of this was given to them because they called upon His name. They knew who they were praying to. They knew. You know, we can do one of two things in the church. I'm almost ready to close here. We can do one of two things in the church. We could either serve at our own convenience. Remember what I said? You can serve but not be servants. We could serve at our own convenience, or we could have the mindset of a servant and submit wholeheartedly to God. That's the best thing to do. You could serve at your own convenience and avoid some troublesome circumstances, but you wouldn't experience the continual filling of the Holy Spirit to serve the Lord with boldness and power. But if you take hold of the mindset of a servant and you submit to the Lord, He will grant you grace to grow in and through your circumstances no matter what they are. Are you willing to submit to Him as as Lord of all in your life today? Are you beginning to think that, you know, in your own life you've kind of set boundaries for yourself and for God? So uh, you're, you're Lord as long as what? As long as things are going okay. You know, when it's tough, you know, I might have to go out beyond the boundary, Lord, to look for help from somewhere else because I thought you were taking care of me. That's not, that's not submitting to His Lordship. It is saying, no matter what happens, you'll give me the boldness and the wisdom and the grace that I might get through every circumstance, every trouble, every trial, every temptation in this life. I want to close with James 4, verses 1 through 7. Almost done here. This is it. James 1. I'm sorry, James 4, 1 through 7. Notice what he says to the church. He's not talking here to the unbelievers. He's talking to church. 
He says, where do wars and fights come up from among you? What happened over the years that all of a sudden when they were one accord, now they're not in one accord any longer. Now there were wars and fights against them. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You see what dangerous times we live in? Do we not live in some sense of a, of a great pleasure dome of, of existence today? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot, contain, uh, cannot obtain. You fight in war, uh, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what does James then call him? He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, it is hatred toward God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. God is jealous for us because we're we're supposed to be his people. And then it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the first few words of verse 7 says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But the important thing is submit to God. Submit to God. Are you ready to submit to the despot? To the absolute ruler and authority of all things? To the one who cannot and should not be ever questioned. To the one who has control of all things. To the one who is sovereign Lord indeed. Is that your prayer life? Is that who you pray to? I hope that our eyes and our ears and our hearts have been open to that. I hope that we now know. And maybe we ever question anything. Let's never question it again. And pray that God will shake us. Shake us to trust Him evermore. But may He shake us with delight because we trust Him wholeheartedly for the things that we need so that we might live in these dangerous times with urgency. Are we praying with urgency? Let's hope we are. Are we praying because we live in desperate times, dangerous times, perilous times, as Paul says? We have a God who's great because He's over and above all of His creation. Do you know that that's the God you pray to in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray.